0: Last Sunday between services, I was out in the south lobby and someone came up to me and he said, hey, Pastor Brian, I saw that you ran a red light this week. <laughs> Apparently he was driving behind me and he witnessed my traffic transgression. Uh, I was, didn't really know what to say when he said that, so I deflected and I mumbled something about, well, that people drive too fast today or something, and then I hurried off. Same day before I went to bed Sunday night, I looked out our window and I noticed that one of our neighbors had left their garage door open and I knew that they had forgotten that. So I contacted them to let them know they were very thankful and I saw their garage door close and well, secretly I was a bit smug about my final good deed of the day until I woke up in the morning and checked my phone. And I saw that I had missed a text from those same neighbors telling me that my garage door was open. <laughs> sure enough, I went and it had been open all night. Like me, do you ever get tired of your transgressions? Ever become unhinged by your own hypocrisy? I mean, you know you're being hypocritical. You don't know how to change it, and you're just like, Ugh. Do you sometimes wonder if your imperfections, your mistakes, your sins are keeping you from living out God's purposes? Well, I've always found great comfort in the doctrine of God's providence. Here's a very helpful definition from Got Questions. Divine providence is the governance of God by which he, with wisdom and love, cares for, and directs all things in the universe. John Piper offers this beautiful definition, providence is God's purposeful sovereignty. Its extent reaches down, this is beautiful, to the flight of electrons and up to the movements of galaxies and into the hearts of man. Its nature is wise and just and good, and its goal is the Christ-exalting glorification of God through the gladness of a redeemed people in the world. Our text today is found in the latter verses of Acts chapter 15. I invite you to open up your Bible. If you didn't bring one with you, there's one in front of you. I'd love for you to be in the practice of seeing God's word with your own eyes, or feel free to use your mobile app. As I was in our text for this weekend, I wrote down this summary statement. God uses imperfect people to accomplish his perfect purposes. By the way, the Bible's filled with examples of God using imperfect people for his purposes. It never glosses over the sins of people. I mean, think of David, sin of adultery and murder. Think of Jonah, a prophet, running away. Think of Peter, bailing on Jesus No, it never glosses over the sins of people because the hero of the Bible is always God. It's all about Him. It's not about you. When I was a newer Christian, I enjoyed reading missionary biographies. I'd finish one biography and I'd go on to the next one. I was fascinated by how God used these men and women to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. But the more I read, I noticed something happening in my own heart. I began to feel inadequate. Now here's why, because many of the missionaries that I read about were depicted as almost perfect. Well, fast forward, many years later, I was in seminary, and one of my professors was Ruth Tucker, and she's the author of the book called From Jerusalem to Irian Jaya. It's a thick book, and it describes how the church exploded from the day of Pentecost going all the way around the world, and her approach is not to list a bunch of dates, but to tell God's story through biography, how God used men and women. But instead of touting just the good things about the men and women of faith, well, she painted a more realistic view of these flawed men and women. It was roundly criticized when the book came out. I mean, people were just blowing the book up. People like, I don't like that book, I don't like that book was roundly criticized. Here's why. Because the missionary heroes were taken off the pedestal. I had a totally different reaction. I love the book. And let me tell you why. Because I liked reading about missionary mistakes. I liked reading about personality problems. Well, here's why. Because these are my kind of people. And they're your kind of people God has always used imperfect people. In other words, I didn't think I could ever be like Adoniram Judson or Hudson Taylor. But when I learned what they were really like, I thought to myself, if God can use their weaknesses, their shortcomings, then maybe, just maybe, if I'm surrendered fully to him, just maybe he can use me as well. Because God only has imperfect people to work with, he works his way and his will through us to accomplish his perfect purposes. We learned last weekend how the church at Jerusalem met together and they had to handle a doctrinal conflict. And they established this truth, Jesus Plus, nothing equals what? Everything. Don't ever forget that. And after the message was clarified, here's the message. Salvation is by grace, through grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, all for the glory of God alone. And we learn that through the scriptures alone. Paul was eager to get back on mission. Meet me in Acts chapter 15, verse 36. This verse sets up our passage. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Barnabas was his missionary partner, let's return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and let's see how they are. You know, it's interesting, Paul was devoted to discipleship, not just evangelism. He knew the best way to ignite evangelism was to reproduce reproducing Christians who go with the gospel to those in their cultural context. And as Paul prepared to go on his second missionary journey, this is three years after the first journey, would you observe we don't read of a divine call, we don't read... The Spirit set apart Paul and Barnabas. We don't even read of a church commissioning service like we do at the start of the first journey. Paul simply said, let us return or let's go again to do what? Let's visit the brothers in every city. That word visit is different from how you and I use the term visit today. We kind of, when we say visit, we're like, oh, we're going to hang out together and spend time with someone we're visiting. But the word actually means to observe, to examine closely, and to look upon with mercy. Mercy so Paul's like, i got to go see these new believers. i got to see how they're doing, make sure they're still growing. We've got to do all we can to encourage and to exhort and equip them. we got to see if they're holding up, and if they're not, how can we come alongside and give them what they need? Now, in our passage, I see three ways that God providentially leads his people. The first one, that's a bit surprising. Number one, God leads through disagreements. God's plan seemed good, everything was good, until Barnabas shared his idea. Look at verse 37. Now, Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark. Barnabas and Mark were cousins. It's natural for them to want to be together, and that phrase, wanted to take, actually means he kept on insisting. Do you know anybody who keeps bringing stuff up all the time? Don't look at your neighbor. It might get awkward here. That's what Barnabas is doing. That's the tense of it. He's not like, hey, let's bring Mark, and he just said it once. No, he kept bringing it up. He's like, Paul, remember Mark? Remember Mark? Let's take Mark with us. Well, according to verse 38, the tension is just rising on the team. Look at verse 38. But Paul thought... Best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. (laughs) Look at this. Paul was so against the idea he couldn't even say Mark's name. Do you see it? But Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them. Actually, it's stronger. The one. The one who had bailed and caved, Paul's like, I don't want anything to do with him. Also observe, it's the word withdrawn. The word withdrawn, well, we get the word "apostasize" from that. And so in Paul's mind, he didn't just leave. I mean, he did something that just really charged Paul up. Now, we might say Mark caved and bailed during the first journey. We don't know a lot of detail, but we have a little insight. If you look at Acts chapter 13, verse 13, we read this. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos, and they came to Perga in Pamphylia. Here it is. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. John is also, his name is John Mark. He left them. He went back to Jerusalem. We don't know why he left. Perhaps he's homesick. He went back to Jerusalem. His mother lived in Jerusalem. She's a key figure in the early chapters of the book of Acts. Had a prayer meeting in her home. So maybe he's like, I got to go back home. Or maybe ministry was, well, was way too hard. He's like, I didn't know it was going to be like this. After all, Pamphylia, where he decided to leave, is a mountainous region. Or... Perhaps he wasn't prepared for the spiritual warfare. He's like, whoa, this is intense. Or maybe he was just too young, too inexperienced. Whatever it was, in Paul's mind, because he went AWOL, he was DQ'd. I wonder if Paul was feeling justified. Maybe he remembered what Jesus said, Luke 9.62, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back, is fit for the kingdom of God. Now, because Paul and Barnabas weren't on the same page, that's saying it mildly. Look at the first part of verse 39. And there arose a, what? Sharp disagreement. A sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. The word arose is in the present tense, meaning their quarrel, was not only contentious, it was continuous. It just kept going. Their disagreement was deep, extremely intense. We get the word paroxysm from the Greek, which means an angry attack and intense provocation. These two partners in ministry, these missionary partners are now going at it with each other. In his book called Great Church Fights, (laughs) that's quite a title, isn't it? Leslie Flynn tells of a young father. He hears a commotion outside, so he opens the door, and he looks outside, and his daughter's playing with her friends, and they're all yelling at each other. They're in this, like, heated quarrel. So he tries to stop the fighting, to which his daughter looked up and said, it's okay, Dad, we're just playing church. Yikes is right. Now due to that sharp disagreement, verse 39 says, Barnabas took Mark with him and he sailed to Cyprus. That's interesting. Cyprus is where Barnabas was from. But it's also where they started out on their first journey from. So there were a lot of new believers there. It made sense to go and visit Cyprus. Look at verses 40 and 41. But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. He went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Let's take a look at a map to kind of get this in our our context here. Over on the far right, even if you can't see the names of the cities, that's okay. Far right, kind of that orange, yellowish area, Syria, that's where Paul and Barnabas are. They start out there. Paul and Silas head up into Cilicia, that's the purple area, and then into Galatia, and then they go all the way around, eventually hitting Europe, and then coming back. Barnabas and Mark head to the island of Cyprus, that's that purple island in the middle of the mediterranean sea this church fight is not pretty i mean when i read this i'm like come on guys take a chill pill right i mean why don't you both just repent and ask each other for forgiveness for your anger but let me just make this observation as destructive as this disagreement was God used these imperfect people to accomplish his perfect purposes. You see, Paul and Barnabas didn't disagree on what should be done. They knew these new believers needed to be visited, but they disagreed on how it should be done, or more specifically, who should be involved in doing it. We could say Paul looked at the ministry, this is what needs to be done, Barnabas looked at a young man who needed to be restored. Genesis 50 verse 20 says God loves to bring good out of bad. Here's Joseph standing in front of his brothers. His brothers who had tried to kill him and eventually sold him into slavery. Now he's in front of his brothers. He could have said anything. Here's what he said. As for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So in this very negative situation, I see some positive benefits. Number one, instead of one missionary team, well, now there are two. And both are seeking to fulfill the Great Commission. Barnabas and Mark headed to Cyprus. According to tradition, they land in North Africa While Paul and Silas went toward Asia, they end up taking the gospel to Europe. Secondly, Paul learned from this experience. I think this experience affected him. The reason I say that is the love chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Listen to verse 5, written, Paul's the human author, 1 Corinthians 13 verse 5. Here's what he said, love is not easily Provoked. Uh, do you think his pen kind of shook a little bit there? When he said love is not easily provoked, here's why. That word provoked is the same word used for sharp disagreement that he had with Barnabas. I think God was changing Paul. Silas, number three, was a good pick for Paul's team because he was a Roman citizen. He had Jewish roots. So why would Silas be better suited than Barnabas? I like what one commentator said because Silas didn't have a cousin named Mark. <laughs> no, really, Silas was from the Jerusalem church. He's well-known in Antioch. He served as a prophet, and he was the human co-author of First and Second Thessalonians. There he's known as Silvanus. Next, apparently Paul and Barnabas reconciled later. Here's why I say that, 1 Corinthians 9, 6. Paul gives Barnabas props. Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? And then finally, Barnabas was able to restore and then mentor Mark for ministry. Don't miss the significance of this. Barnabas was willing to have conflict with Paul in order to restore a fallen brother. Paul had labeled Mark a loser. Barnabas was a lover, and he never gave up on Mark. I think the only label he put on Mark was something like this. You matter to God, no matter what you've done. And I'm going to walk through life with you. You matter to me. Now, we know from Scripture that Barnabas poured courage back into Mark. Because this discouraged and defeated man became a contributing member of the team again. Friends, this is encouraging because it reminds us that you and I are in process and that sin and failure don't ever have the last word. If you belong to Christ, God is not finished with you yet. Aren't you glad about that? And guess what? God's not finished with your family member either or your friend Years ago, I saw someone wearing a button with a bunch of letters on it. I didn't know what it meant. P B P G I N F W M Y. I'm like, what's that stand for? Please be patient. God's not finished with me yet. Until God finishes his work in us, we're all in process. There's the good news. He always finishes what he starts. Philippians 1.6, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. Listen and be encouraged with how God changed Paul and how God changed Mark. When Paul was in a Roman prison, 15 years later, he wrote these words about Mark found in Colossians 4.10. Listen to this. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. So Paul is in prison. He's writing to the church at Colossae, and he says, have a guy with me. His name is Aristarchus. He sends greetings. And Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions, if he comes to you, he's speaking of Mark, welcome him. Secondly, Paul refers to Mark as a fellow worker. That's Philemon 24, as a demonstration of complete restoration. This is incredible. 1 Peter 5:13, Paul refers to him this way: "Mark, my son." He calls him his son." Oh there's even more. Three years later, Paul is in Rome. He's in prison. He's about to be martyred for his faith. These are some of the last words the Apostle Paul ever wrote. And he wants Mark by his side before he dies. It's fascinating. He didn't have any reservations about Mark having the fortitude to make that long journey to Rome. Listen and be encouraged by 2 Timothy 4, 9 through 11. Apostle Paul, in prison, about to be martyred. He's writing a letter. It's a second letter to Timothy, a young pastor. Do your best to come to me soon. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me. I have to pause there. Do you know anybody who used to walk with Christ, and now they've bailed, they've deserted And why? Well, it says here, in love with this present world. So Demas used to minister with Paul, and now he's just all up in worldly things. And Paul's about to die, and he's sad about that. He's gone to Thessalonica, and then he remembers somebody else. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me, so it's just Paul and Luke the author, human author of Acts. Get these words. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me in ministry. That's incredible. Ironically, he mentions three guys who left him, Luke who was still with him, and two guys he wanted to see, Timothy and Mark, the one who previously deserted him. Hey, as you do an inventory of your relationships and one of those or some of those relationships has, have ruptured, don't give up hope of reconciliation. Aren't you glad God uses imperfect people to accomplish his perfect purposes? Man, I love Warren Wiersbe's insight. He's so good with words. If God had to depend on perfect people to accomplish his work, he would never, ever get anything done. <laughs> Number two, God leads as we intentionally disciple others. Meet me in verse 1 of Acts 16. Paul came also to Derby and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy. The son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. Now, as you may recall, Lystra was where Paul was nearly stoned to death. On the first journey, let's look at the map again to get our bearings. So, uh, start over there in Syria, far right, purple area, Cilicia. Then up into Derby, and now in the middle of that area, the green area is the community called Lystra. That's where Timothy joins the team with Paul and Silas. So we know Timothy had some strong character traits. Number 1, he was a strong believer. Would you know what he's called a disciple? A disciple's a learner and follower. He's one who's serious about following Jesus. He's not just going through the motions, just going to church once in a while. No, a disciple is a believer who lovingly follows Jesus and intentionally helps others follow him. We could say it like this. He was a full-fledged follower of Jesus, not just a fan of Jesus. He didn't just clap for Jesus He had surrendered fully to him. Secondly, he had a very good reputation. Would you notice it says he was well spoken of by the Christians who lived around him. People knew him as a man of integrity, a man of his word, and a man of the word. Thirdly, he was available. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him. He understood that sometimes ministry means leaving home. Sometimes it means facing hardship. In Philippians 2.20, Paul can't think of anyone like Timothy. Oh, for these words to be said about you or about me. Here's what he says about Timothy. I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. And number four, he was willing to do whatever it took to build bridges for the gospel. Now, some have criticized Paul for having Timothy circumcised because this took place right after or soon after the Jerusalem council decided to not require this of Gentile believers. But if you look at it from a bridge-building perspective, it makes sense because this would allow Timothy who was half-Jewish but had never been circumcised, to now be able to go into synagogues where you had to be circumcised and into Jewish homes in order to preach the gospel. This principle is fleshed out by Paul, 1 Corinthians 9, to the Jews I became as a Jew. Why? In order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law. Notice how careful he is though not being myself under the law. Why? That I might win those under the law. I've become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I might share with them in its blessings. We don't have time to go into more detail, but I will make this point. When it comes to salvation, Paul was crystal clear. You're saved by faith through grace in Christ alone. Paul did not require Titus, who was a Gentile, to be circumcised, Galatians 2, 3, but he did have Timothy, who was half-Jewish circumcised in order to preach the gospel. Now, many commentators believe Paul was the one who led Timothy to Christ on his first missionary journey. For evidence, they point to 1 Timothy 1, verse 2. He says this, to Timothy, my true child in the faith. Well, that might be the case, but I believe it was primarily his grandmother and his mother who sowed the seed of the gospel in his soul. Listen to 2 Timothy 1.5, I'm reminded of your sincere faith. He's writing to Timothy, a faith that dwelt first in your, who? Say it with me, grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure, dwells in you as well. That word sincere means genuine, without hypocrisy or pretense. The King James translates it as unfeigned faith. His faith was not a false facade. He's the real deal. And Paul was reminded of Timothy's sincere spirituality. And when he thought of Timothy, he recalled that he had a godly grandma. A godly grandma. And when he traced his family tree of faith, he used this phrase, a faith that dwelt first In your grandmother, Lois, that word dwelt means to inhabit, to take up residence, to be at home with. One Greek expert translates it this way, to house in you continually. So to her, faith didn't make a guest appearance a couple times a year. No, her faith was a full-time, year-round resident. So Lois, grandma, passed on her faith to her daughter, Eunice, who had the same kind of all in faith, and your mother Eunice, and now I'm sure dwells in you. So Paul is convinced that Timothy's faith commitment can be traced through his mother and grandmother. Observe the word dwells is in the present tense, meaning Timothy's faith is alive and active. If you're a grandparent, and you want to learn how to become more intentional intentional in the evangelizing and discipling of your grandchildren. Would you join me for the Legacy Grandparenting Summit? It's gonna be held right here. This is a big deal. This is a national conference that will be simulcast here at Edgewood, so people in this whole region will be coming here for this conference. It's designed to help you and I to become a grand fluencer and to have a grand impact on the next generation. You'll receive wisdom and direction from engaging speakers and support by being with other grandparents. You can head out to the table in the lobby after the service and sign up. Now, as Paul intentionally discipled others, we see the results. Look at verse 5. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and they increased in numbers daily. Man, mean, I pray that Edgewood will become more established. During this past year and a half of challenges, I pray that we'll see more and more people come to saving faith as they're reached with the gospel of grace. Would you join me in praying Psalm 85, verse 6, which goes like this, Will you not revive us again? That your people may rejoice in you. Aren't you glad God uses imperfect people to accomplish His perfect purposes? God leads through disagreements, and He leads when we disciple others. Thirdly, well, He leads when we're devoted to follow Him. Listen now to verses 6 through 10, the last section. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Let's look at the map one last time. So now they're in that green area. Now look over right in the center of the map, the red or pink area called Asia. Paul is now wanting to go and go south into that area of Asia because there's a lot of unreached people there. But we read the Spirit wouldn't let that happen. So Paul's like, okay, I can't go south. I'm going to go north. So he's like, okay, I'm going to go up to Bithynia and Pontus. Uh, We read that he was forbidden to go there. So what does he do? Well, we read in verse 8. They didn't want to go east. They didn't want to go back home. They're prevented from going south or north, so they decide to go as far west as they could. We read they went down to Troas, a seaport city. So when they could go no further, they rented an Airbnb on the beach and waited for God's directions. I just threw that in to see if you were still with me. Okay, But watch this. This missionary team did not stand still. That is a really good principle if you're asking God to lead you. Let me say it like this. If you want to know God's will, don't just sit around and be a spiritual sluggard. Get up and start serving. God will open and close doors as you attempt to go through them. Now, that area of Asia and Bithynia, well, they're filled with lost people, but the Spirit had other plans for that team at that time. By the way, both of those regions were reached later. We know that, First Peter 1, verse 1, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, here it is, Asia and Bithynia. God's timing is often a mystery to us. We're like, why is that door closed? Why did that not happen? But listen, it's always perfect to him. And the importance of listening to the Spirit as you serve is spelled out. Isaiah 30, verse 21. And your ears shall hear a word behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it. When you turn to the right or when you turn to the left, as the saying goes, God can't steer a parked car. If you want to be led by God, get moving in ministry. And you're like, well, I'm not sure where I'm going to end up. Well, Abraham didn't know either. Hebrews 11, verse 8, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. Here's what I wrote down. If you say you must know everything before you'll go anywhere, you'll end up going nowhere and doing nothing. See, as Paul wondered what to do next, verse 9 <laughs> records something supernatural. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. That word urging means beseeching or crying. He wanted these missionaries to come over to provide help. Would you note how quickly the team obeyed? It says they went immediately, straightway, instantly, Psalm 119, 60, I hasten and do not delay to keep your commands. The gospel ended up reaching a whole new continent, eventually spread throughout Europe. Next weekend, we'll see how the gospel exploded in Greece, the cultural center of the world, and later how it extended all the way to Rome, the political center of the world. Well, here's what we've learned. God uses imperfect people to accomplish his perfect purposes. God leads through disagreements. God leads us as we intentionally disciple others. God leads us when we're devoted to follow him. Well, let's consider a few ways God may prompt us to put this message into practice. Number one, reconcile a ruptured relationship. Here's what I've observed. You too, I've seen it. So last week, Satan tried to disrupt the new church through false doctrine. And in our passage today, he unleashes this fierce discord among two brothers. We read in Philippians 4 verse 2 about two sisters in Christ who once served side by side and now they're sideways with each other and they're going at it. And Paul's like, he's appealing to people at Philippi to help these two women be reconciled. He says, I entreat Yodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Question, who is God prompting you to reach out to this week to begin the process of reconciliation? It's a good week to do it because we're celebrating communion next weekend. That could be accountability for you this week to take care of that. Number two, reach out to someone who may feel sidelined. Do you know anybody who feels knocked down or been knocked down or knocked out? God may give you the privilege of coming alongside that individual and pouring courage back into him or her. Number three, re-engage in serving. You've been waiting for God to lead you and you've not been serving. It's time to re-engage. I love the title of a book by Kevin DeYoung. Our daughters read it when they were in high school. Just do something. Number four, respond to the cry of the lost. There are lost people all around us and they're crying out for you to tell them about Jesus and you're like, not the people I know, Well, it might not seem like it, but if someone doesn't know Christ, that's the cry of their heart. And God loves to use imperfect people like you and like me to accomplish his perfect purposes. Would you live on mission where he has placed you and be willing to go where his spirit directs you? Start with your neighbors and be willing to go to the nations. So when God sends a red light, Uh, stop. Don't try to run through it. But when the light is green, hit the gas and take the gospel to those God puts in your path. Would you stand? God, we've heard your word and we've interacted with it in our minds and Perhaps we're already filing it away as more information, but, Lord, we don't want to be a people who just hear your word and are unaffected by it. No, now we pray by your Spirit you would take your holy, living, active word, apply it to our lives in those places where we need a fresh word from you, a fresh word from your word. Lord, now help us to live out what you have for us, all for your glory and your honor. Lord, anyone here today who's not yet put their faith and trust in you through the new birth, Lord, would they just cry out to you and say, I need you to save me, Jesus. I'm a sinner. I repent from how I've been living. I turn to you. Thank you for dying in my place on the cross and for rising from the dead. I believe and I receive. Come into my life. Make me into the person you want me to be and then use me as a disciple of yours, to make an impact in those around us. Lord, we offer ourselves to you. Earlier we sang about laying our life down. We declare it again. Use us for your purposes. Use us as your ambassadors as we live on mission for the fame of your glorious name. And we pray in Jesus' name and all God's people said amen. Amen. Hey, have a good rest of the day.